I'm kind of noticing this trend right now, and this is, you know, my bias is the NYC art world, but it kind of seems like this young industry is in a period of decline. A few friends I used to share a studio with many years ago, for the last few years, I want to say the last like four to five years, all of the interns that they hire, which are, you know, uh, quite selective, like these are, you know, young creative people who are ambitious, who want to build things. There's not one of them who's decided to stay in New York after they graduated. Hmm. It seems like people are opting out of these major cultural hubs. And I think that is an indication of the overall health of the industry. And then I've noticed a few times where certainly I'm getting older, I'm 35 now, you know, it was a different case when I was 25 and, and new to all this stuff. But there's been a few rooms where like, how am I still the youngest person in the room? Like something, yeah, yeah, <laughs> something yeah, is yeah. going wrong with the overall health of creative industries. Do you have a sense of what has shifted in the last few years that might be causing some of the decline of young creative economies? Like what changed in creative life during the period where people like you and I got our foot in the door versus the Zoomer experience of people who are just graduating now or in the last few years? It's a great question. I found that myself too, actually. I mean, it brings to mind you were chatting with you, Rachel, Carly, and Julian were talking about how, you know, post-internet's back. And in some right, cases, it's kind right. of tr- it feels kind of true, right? That a lot of, let's say, subcultural stuff that peaked or spiked kind of at the end of the 2010s just kind of was the last one. And I'd say the same for music. You know, it's like, generally speaking, there are still lots of musical subcultures happening, you know, people pursuing music in some kind of way, but nowhere near like what we would have experienced uh, uh, coming up. And I mean, I think the, the clearest read on it is just that the economic situation changed, right? I mean, I think that like the rampant, let's say, kind of platform populism, you know, characterized hmm. characterized by Web2, where, you know, the idea, I mean, Holly's critique of streaming, for example, where, for example, you know, we, we shifted from an environment in which economically we were we valued uh, records or music by actually paying for things and transitioned into this kind of, paying someone for the amount of times that you consume something, this kind of race to the bottom, just shifted the economics to such an extent that the surplus money that was circulating around these scenes just doesn't really exist anymore. And there's one kind of argument you could make, which I think, you know, as much as I'll rail on, for example, a lot of the Web2 stuff, I think that your Spotify's or your YouTube's or whatever, they have a lot of really clever people working in there. Like the most frightening thing in a sense is that what they did was they brought in incredible efficiencies to how cultural money was distributed. And that in actuality, all of the fringe kind of like loose change, loose money from this from these hulking creative industries that actually sustain scenes in cities, all of that was actually just inefficient. You know, that was right. just kind of like right. uh you know, runoff of kind of like much bigger commercial activity that was happening. Um, and so in a sense, with all this activity moving to platforms, now those systems just more efficiently place money uh, where where attention is, right? And so as a result of like Web2, um, what we've seen is, you know, more and more wealth, more and more uh, attention concentrates amongst fewer and fewer people. And it would be a very rational thing, I think, for someone in their early 20s to look at the situation in a New York or a London or increasingly even in a Berlin where I live, you know, and look at the rents, look at the the opportunities to actually uh, sustain yourself and say, well, you know, this is dumb. You know, I mean, I think yeah. around about our age group, it was already kind of like a, a little urban legend ghost story where you're kind of like, by the way, like 
nobody pays you to do anything. But most people here, you know, like most people here have secret money. And it's kind of like, I think that I told oh, there's a lot at, of secret money. Oh, oh for boy. sure. You know, and it's like, but, but so for, you know, I, I taught a class at NYU for, for many years. Um, and I loved doing it. And then the students there were, were great. And, and they were also like on TikTok. you know, they weren't like, I felt like a complete alien, uh, very kind of outmoded, uh, talking, discussing my ideas with them. Um, but, but they were more aware of, the, the kind of austere financial reality around yeah. them hmm. um, uh, than anyone anyone when I was coming up I think I think it could just be that you know we we're like the boomers or whatever you know like we like even though we look at we look to the boomers and those people who got to you know like uh, buy a buy a house using a year's salary um, we look at them with envy I can imagine that we're also our age group is probably antagonizing to people who are 19 or 20 um, because we had a lot of advantages just because of the inefficiencies. We, we got to yeah. establish yeah. ourselves as cultural actors before the boom of the platform populism. Well, that's the, that's the curious thing is because these inefficiencies, there's something that happens with the increase of competition when you deploy culture at scale. It, it's inefficiency in a commercial sense, but for people like me and you, I think the stuff that we really liked about emerging culture is that there was a level of creative risk that you could take mm -hmm. because of that inefficiency. And that created all of these really dedicated groups and a, a boom of just strange creative projects that was so much more fascinating and enriching than like the long tail of TikTok memes, which yeah. <laughs> I think yeah. is a, a disappointing thing to compare against. Just to add to that point, I mean, mm. this, this touches on, I think, why we talk about interdependence in a sense, right? And I think that is like, like I'm not a populist. I think that culture is impoverished by only by only prioritizing the most immediately commercially viable things, because I think that that obfuscates the truth of the matter, which is you need these kind of inefficient pockets that are maybe not the most commercially viable, because ultimately they do fulfill a market role, right? Like as we mentioned before, a lot of things that aren't immediately uh, uh, commercially obvious, end up serving as Petri dishes or RMD labs for ideas. So in a sense, when you're just looking at, at numbers, that only tells you uh, one side of the story. And I think that looking at the, the cultural landscape writ large, it would take a very ambitious person to argue that we are in a better, more stimulating, more uh, intriguing uh, uh, cultural landscape than we were before the platform bomb went off. Do you... I certainly have examples of this where I know people who would carry out their art practice and then make creative concessions to cater to certain collector interests of like, I know if I fabricate this as a painting rather than a photograph, a certain collector will purchase it. I'm wondering if, uh, and you don't have to name names here, but just generally in broad strokes of your peer group, have you seen people had to compromise on their work to suit algorithmic recommendation or to optimize for streams on Spotify? Like j just for example, like if there was a song that was eight minutes, cut it into two minutes and have it repeat a bunch of times and then you would get more ad revenue or something like this. Are these are there little decisions along the way where you started to notice people professionalizing for the specific type of distribution that then became the monopoly? Yeah, for sure. And I mean and I think in a historical context, let's be clear, right? Like making like little process hacks or whatever to suit whatever the economic conditions of the time were is not something new, right? Like it, there's nothing sure. organic to the album format being 13 songs or whatever, or, you know, the radio song being three minutes uh, and being compressed in a way that competes with advertising, right? People have always made economic concessions 
uh, made creative concessions uh, based on the economy that they're in. But absolutely, I mean, I mean, if anything, for me, like the the one really telling thing I think is that as we've seen kind of a decline in the sustainability of, you know, let's say capital M music or capital A art, as everything has kind of bled into it itself within uh, within platforms, you've seen that in some cases, you could argue some people are maybe doing this cynically or in a compromised way. In other cases, you could say people just got lucky. But you're seeing, the most interesting thing for me is like, seeing greater cleavage of artists in relation to growth industries, right? So it's not good enough Mm. to be just a musician anymore, right? You have musicians who do well because they also happen to be adjacent to the tech industry or the tech conversation, which we would absolutely fall into that that position. And and I can say that we do so uh, not cynically, but, but that is one advantage to our career, right? It's like, you know, we'll end up being in the news quite regularly because, we're pursuing tech conversations that end up being somewhat relevant. I mean, you know, like I get called mm-hmm. by major newspapers to talk about AI or whatever. But you could say the same right, for right. like fashion, right? Like the primacy of sure. fashion, the 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 extent to which fashion has kind of dominated everything, like the hypebeast culture. I always joke that, you know, the um the Shopify Shopify was more important culturally than Spotify and everybody just missed it. Right. That like <laughs> actually for for a lot of for a lot of younger people, like starting your own brand in the image of Virgil Abloh or Kanye or whatever was was a bigger deal than starting a label, right? That maybe people, millennials associate with with subculture. And so it's no surprise that like a lot of artists or musicians who are particularly photogenic or can walk down a catwalk seem to be getting by, you know, in a way that maybe their less photogenic uh, friend is not, because the fashion industry has its own its own relevance and its own big budgets, right? Um, you could say the same for for gaming, right? Gaming being another growth industry, like there are musicians or artists who court or just happen to naturally be interested in gaming as a medium, and as a result, they find opportunities or wider audiences as a result, you know, as a result of that. So if you look at, you know, over the past 10 years, like since the platform, the platform uh, bomb went off, you could look back and you could categorize people and say, well, okay, well, there's really big pop stars generally who tend to be aligned with major label interests who still dominate streaming, right? Like 100% dominate streaming. They have streaming. Um, Are we talking like a hundred to one ratio? What is that? What's the scale for this? 10 to one, thousand to one? Oh no. I mean, like the top like 0.001% of artists can like it's something like 60% of all streams or something. It's, it's, it's insane, you know, and, and then you have uh, uh, tech adjacent artists, you have gaming adjacent artists, you have fashion adjacent artists, you have sometimes art adjacent artists, right? Like big A, capital A art. And then when you break people out into those things, it kind of makes sense. And somewhere in the middle is this empty hole, which is where the old culture industry that we maybe knew as teenagers used to be, right? And that actually is disappearing rapidly by the day. So if you were to pursue a career or, you know, want to set yourself the ambition of pursuing a career, aspiring to uh, exist within that vacuum, yeah, you probably need to reconsider what that looks like because that is just a shrinking void. It doesn't, it doesn't really exist anymore. And I know this from, we, we know this, right? Like, having so many different friends in and around art, music, or whatnot, like generally speaking, with the the wild card being secret money, right, which we can talk about, but like (laughs) outside of secret secret money, generally everybody sustains themselves by their proximity to other industries that have not shriveled since the platforms came along, which let's be clear, 
and, and in music, which is something that I have the most experience with, that's just really clear, right? I mean, like, you can look now, I'll have people come to me and be like, hey, like, I'm, I've written a record. Is there a label you could recommend I send it to? And I'm like, well, I'll concede that I'm busy now, so I don't follow this as much as intensely as I did five years ago, but I'll look around and I'm like, no. <laughs> yeah, no, just, like, what are you going to upload? It doesn't, you know, it, it doesn't, it's just not really a thing anymore in the way it was. And it's only us in our 30s who really remember, have a vivid memory of what roles those institutions played. You know, I mean, I remember when I was in SVA, I was studying photography, and they would bring in magazine editors to give talks to the class, but it wasn't necessarily clear what kind of instructions or advice to give to students who are trying to launch a career because the means of distribution has just transformed so, so much. Uh, it, It was a curious position where there's an editor of a magazine coming in and maybe the best advice that could have been given to people at the time was to post their work to Instagram. Like that, that is a real challenge. That's a real rival structure. What kind of advice do you give people who are aspiring musicians now? I mean, is there a worthwhile way to go about it? Or is it to promote, to align yourself with uh, another creative industry that hasn't suffered the same uh, devaluation? It's such a banal answer, but but in truth, there's no secret to it. I mean, it, it is really difficult. As you said, like, we know, we're fortunate, we, we've, we've met many artists who had very, very successful, let's say, 20th century careers. They haven't been able to give us any advice. Like very lovely people. <laughs> oh but, wow! Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, so that's the one. That's the first thing I'll say is like, you know, cleanse yourself of any bohemian uh, fantasies. You know, like that, because that that idea of like tw- how how things happened in the twentieth century, where you you move somewhere and like chill out for a bit and like kind of <laughs> and like look cool. <laughs> I mean, maybe that still works in some places, but like uh, I don't know, know where. <laughs> yeah, but 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 that that narrative is like that 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 wasn't even true for us. You know, like yeah. I've, I've had a yeah. I've had a job in some capacity for I've been working full time since I was 19. You know, this is like that was never available to me. Um but I equally feel kind of a bit stumped when it comes to how a 19 or 20 year old would would exist within this landscape. All I can do in some ways is impart is impart as, as transparent a read of what it's like for us as possible. Yeah. Um, and that's where I say, you know, don't let yourself fall too quickly into, let's say, Puritan positions based on like Puritanical positions based on uh, socioeconomic configurations from a time before you you existed. I think that just going back to it, the only thing that's ever worked for me is actual legitimate participation. And I think that, but there's no, and there's also no substitution. This sounds cheesy, but there's no substitution for curiosity because it's like, it doesn't really matter what it is that you, that you care about, but you're just going to have to care about it a whole bunch. Um, because now I think that like, it's no longer the circumstance where you can kind of make a record that sounds good or make like an image that looks really good and then sustain yourself from that without there being something else in the background. That's just, I don't think that time's there. I, I think that honestly, there are a lot of fictions about how available that was before the platform explosion too, you know, that like generally speaking, opportunities tend to come to people who commit themselves for a long period of time are very open-minded when they choose to pursue something creatively, they pursue it uh, fully, you know, and find other people who are like really serious about stuff. I think this is part of how we find ourselves in this position. 
There's a, a deflation of the payments, the, the compensation in various creative fields that correlates with the mass adoption curve of social media, uh, increased optimization in, say, for streaming and music or for uh, financialization in the art, uh, the professional art world. And I know certain peers of mine who I was thinking about this in advance of the conversation that one of the more successful peers in the period that we were hanging out and doing a lot of collaborative work, I watched the value of his work. I won't say who it is. <laughs> I watched the value of his work increase by two orders of magnitude from $400 to $4,000 to $40,000, which is a very, very insane thing to happen. But one of the reasons why people get, I think, so upset about like NFTs and how uh, rampant speculation is and, and whatever is just because they didn't have that experience in the regular uh, physical art world commodity trading. Uh, yeah, but this totally. is, you know, this, this is kind of how it goes. And these things boom and bust very rapidly. Towards the end of that, everybody had to clean up shop. You know, I mean, myself and, and most of our peer group did not benefit to this thing to like a fraction of what some of the whales in the space or the, the people who really, in some cases, retired after the boom of the art market. But things got very, very lean after it crashed. And I started to realize that the conversation that was happening around me just didn't really match the reality of how I was making a living off of my work or what I was having to spend my time doing, where I was having to freelance or I was having to do all of these like gigs on the side to supplement the rapidly depreciating artworks that, that we were making at the time. This is like 2015 is probably like the painful end of it. Um, but then the, the conversation didn't adapt. The conversation didn't adapt to the reality that was unfolding around us. And I slowly began to realize that as the bottom dropped out of the market that was sustaining everybody, the competition was actually so incredibly asymmetrical that it was the children of like hedge fund managers and billionaires that were actually participating in these economies and actually in many cases, that what that is what was sustaining it after the inefficiencies or the allowance for creative risk had been, you know, quote, quote, optimized in so many cases. It's curious, we were in advance of uh, uh, the record talking about a phrase from Jen Pan, who, um, <laughs> how did she put it? In the media and in the academy, it's easier to be a communist than a social democrat. Yeah. There's now a very strange pairing of these like, ultra elite creative industries that are carrying on this mythology of the bohemian existence where in many decades previous, you could kind of go to a major city, more or less drop out of society, exist uh, through part-time gigs, and then do a weird creative project on the side. And now the cost of living and all of these efficiencies have like ground out the possibility to do that, to, to take risks and to make something that doesn't immediately professionalize itself and um, anticipate where it's going to be sold uh, as an artwork later on. Um, those things can happen over many, many years, but the time cycle or the time frame within which you have to determine those decisions is now like within the next season rather than working yep. on a body of work for two or three years and then uh, somebody wants to facilitate the next thing. Now it's like, before I can even make the painting, I have to know who I'm going to sell it to because I'm so hard up for cash. Yep. And, and that is the case across like New York, LA, London. Um, I'm, I know it's a little bit less the case in Berlin, but certainly all my friends there, I hear that it is getting increasingly more expensive and more difficult. Sure. And so, yeah, the I guess one of the things that I've tried to discuss on this program is that there's a reason why the art world doesn't match 
the experience of trying to navigate a creative career is because those people are fundamentally not competing for the same things that you are. Uh, yeah. And then they have these really wild uh, politics, which are, I think, strategically uh, impossible to achieve, which is a, a kind of complicated thing of like what interests have captured cultural institutions in the last few years. But I, so, so this is kind of where I find myself is like having to go out onto your own platform is tied up in all of these things and then creating the narrative that matches people's experience is the thing that needs to be put out there in in some capacity right like if there's any hope to correct these things uh, it has to start at some sort of alt media creative adjacent sphere in which we can like conduct the real conversation if it's not possible to happen in the institution in the art museum or in the legacy magazines at the moment yeah, totally. I have so much to say on that. And I'm glad that your platform is actually one place that has been really consistent pointing to this, right? So a few things, like, let's be 100% clear, like the only people who can vividly, dutifully satisfy the bohemian fantasies of the 20th century are the rich, period. Per like, that is your prior move from that position. So you then have a choice, right? The most kind of like, shorthand way I can say it is like, one, don't be a sucker, but also don't be a cynic. Don't be a sucker. I say that because so in my in my personal circumstance, like I, I come from a, a weird, like culturally working class. I grew up as like a third culture kid, functionally middle class. I have no assets to inherit, you know, this kind of thing. Like it was already very clear. I moved to London when I was very young to go to school. You know, I went to art things and immediately knew because I have this very protective, I'm a very pragmatic person. I'm always very aware of like class. Being in art circles immediately when I was younger, I was like, I'm too ugly and poorly dressed to be here. Nobody wants me here. <laughs> no, genuinely, like that was always the feeling. I was like, no, no, it's true. It's true. I was like an unkempt, broke kid, you know, and I was just like, this is not my world. Like these people these people like don't care. And that's actually part of the reason why, I mean, for years I was in like hardcore metal, like that, I was in that kind of corner of subculture for the longest time. Cause I was just like, this is not my world. I'm not going to be a sucker and pursue this because it's not for me. Like there's nothing here for me. That was my feeling. However, what the reason why I say don't be a cynic is that I do feel that you can be very clear eyed in looking at challenges in the world, advantages other people have over you, a general slide in culture. It's all well and good to be very, very kind of uh, sober about your chances, but cynicism doesn't help anybody. You know, like, because I've seen that too, where, where it's like when you're in it those circumstances- It will kill your creativity. Yeah. It will kill everything. And, and, it, and, and the thing is, is like understanding the landscape and understanding that there are challenges and that some people have advantages and some people don't, whatever, it can so easily be used as a, as a motivation to do nothing. Um, yes. And yes, and that antagonizes me because, you know, the kind of culture that I've always admired generally is autodidacts who pursue oftentimes very esoteric intellectual or technical pursuits, <laughs> oftentimes don't come from fancy backgrounds, didn't have things handed to them. And I'm really glad that they weren't cynics. I'm really glad that they pushed for what they wanted to see in the world. And what you'll find is that irrespective of the fact that, yeah, writ large, the arts is a very moneyed environment. Even though th that is the case, you will find if you're not cynical and you do put projects out in the world, you'll find people. What's been so heartwarming to me, definitely as someone who like has despair, like despairs regularly over things, is just what kind of people come out of the woodwork 
when you actually choose to take the choice of doing something positive, not being overly cynical, you'll end up finding that actually that room in the art world that looks completely alienating, where most people there you couldn't give a shit about, you don't necessarily respect because they probably didn't earn any of what they have, you know, that actually there's three or four people in there who might be the most uh, accomplished people there who maybe have a background like you and, and identify when they see something being positive, being put in the world that actually has value and is interesting and, and rigorous, that they value that too. This is the curious thing that I, apparent in the last few years is that so much of the creative world kind of exists in this parallel reality where you think, oh, this is a niche interest that just a few people really care about in a serious yeah. way. And then a few years later, it has a tremendous impact and you realize, yeah. oh, this was in some way ahead of the curve or it had cascading influence. I think we actually, we coined it on the episode that uh, the very first one we did together the mood board industrial complex where yeah, you're totally. constantly ahead of the curve. You're the loss leader doing R&D for much larger industries and advertising. This is very apparent, but essentially ideas are plucked up from young creatives and then deployed yep. at scale by other larger organizations. And, and yeah, what totally. I found is that you end up being like the only person in the room who has invented this one weird thing. And that has like a magnetic property that draws people in because it doesn't neatly fit into any other aspect of society. So maybe one example of this is that we were watching on the stream last night, uh, Holly's talk at TED debuting Holly Plus. That's the only thing in the world like that. There's not yeah. like two versions of that. Like there's only one place to go. Yep. It's very interesting to see how these things crop up now. There was a funny moment where, you know, Holly, I, I didn't go, but Holly was at Venice this year and at some point was, you know, introduced to some gallerist in, uh, from San Francisco. And apparently this very well put together person was like, oh, well, you know, like the problem with San Francisco is the tech people. And I was like, this is really interesting on this point because I know a very different side. Are they buying the art? Well, Are they, well, first, first off, lives there? first off, a lot of the tech people don't buy the art because they're kind of condescended to. Um, but, but the other side is like, there needs to be a name for this. I know that Piketty talks about like the Brahmin left, but it doesn't really cover this. Yeah, if you go to San Francisco now, there is a class of people, and it's often kind of bohemian, very well educated uh, types who have developed a sense of superiority, who you know got to buy uh, real estate in the cheapest, you know, at the cheapest point. They've seen that those assets value insanely well, which is of course uh, supported supported these fantasies that they still have about who's on the right side of culture and who's on the wrong side of culture. The way that California tax uh, law works and property tax law works, oftentimes these people, their property tax is very low and it's subsidized by the families who have to move to the Bay Area to get the job at Google or Apple or whatever, who pay crippling property tax, right? If you're a new home buyer or something like that, you deign to have a family, dare to have a family in the, in the Bay Area. A lot of tech workers and people involved in tech come from a similar background to me or people that would culturally identify as being you know, from the working classes. It's not the, it's not the truth with Zuck or you know Bill Gates or whatever, like, yes. A lot of immigrants as well. Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and, and so there's this odd kind of tension there where I'm like, I can't hear these kind of like broad strokes dismissals of of the tech industry more broadly and oh the tech industry the you know these the, the malevolent force of the tech industry. I, can't, I can't i can't hear that because because it's actually it's actually so much more complicated um and and you're right in saying that in certain cultural sectors it's far easier to kind of coast along and make 
essentially meaningless kind of uh, impotent gestures about how the world should be. And then you have this other world where, which is complicated, and there's a lot of people in tech who I loathe, and I, I just, or at least disagree with them um, about where things are going. But, but they're actually kind of doing stuff, you know. Um, and they're doing stuff. They're they're finding practical ways to to get things funded, get strange ideas funded in some cases. In some cases, ideas that really help people out. So, so I kind of my whole like, don't be a sucker, don't be a don't be a cynic is like, I ended up as a result of that being very intrigued by, and also kind of empowered by for want of a better term the technical quarters in the ways that i think would be impossible to see within the traditional kind of capital a art world and and so hmm. again that's another reason why i would encourage people to be open-minded and curious uh, about those worlds or at least or at the very least kind of uh, develop enough of a thorough understanding of those worlds that you can be effectively critical you know uh, uh, and, and functionally I, i'm not really interested or, or don't really have much time for hand wavy broad strokes progressive good quote unquote good leftist uh, uh gestures that have no <laughs> that have no material that make no material difference on people's lives like I, I i don't really have time or respect for that i wanted to try and connect these two points because i think this is a very curious landscape that's unfolding right now you bring up thomas piketty's framing of the brahmin left and the merchant right and there's some uh, very strange very novel paradigms of like how culture and commentary is produced right now where you have what I would broadly refer to as, let's just call them for convenience, the landlord class of people mm -hmm. who are going to inherit money at some point later in their life. And so their, uh, their participation in the creative world, whether it's writing art reviews, whether it's making paintings, whether it's, uh, it, it could be any pursuit, they could be musicians as well, um, that broadly, the declining opportunity to take creative risk that has been ground out through the new efficiencies of these Web2 distribution platforms, they still have that because they know that they're going to be safe no matter what. And then you have this very strange moralizing rhetoric that is coming from an ultra wealthy, very safe uh, demographic in which people who are attempting to pursue or make their own way in the world now pay this weird like tithing to, their, to gain their approval. And you know, we haven't talked too much about Web3 yet, but we've, we've touched on it in many other different podcasts. But a large part of that rhetoric is the possibility to create fractional ownership or to have equity. If you collaborate with a bunch of people, you can own part of that business. I'm wondering if there's some type of dynamic that's being set up here where if all of the culture and the commentary is being produced by people who are incredibly financially safe, is there a reason why so much of the mainstream narrative is pushing against the idea of fractional ownership or equity if the entire discourse is dominated by people who are like the beneficiaries of that inequality? Yeah, so a couple of points on that. Number one, I don't I don't know whether it is is so cynical as to be a deliberate attempt from people in advantage advantaged uh, positions to subdue things that might you know shrink their power in the world i don't know if it's that coordinated whatever that so so piketty's framing of of the brahmin left and the mercantile right or whatever it, it kind of like rhymes with this but there needs to be a term for this you said the landlord mm. class i still think there needs to be a term for it because that that association feels too too vague for me a large group of people who happen to dominate the uh the cultural often the journalistic sphere can be can have low income, but exactly at some point in their life, given the way the assets are valued, um, at some point in their life can guarantee that they will see a huge windfall. And when I look into it, I'm like, oh, like my most vociferous detractors, almost to a head, 
fall into that category where they basically can afford to live their life being functionally broke up until a certain point when they will have more <laughs> when they will have more money than I could ever earn in a job right and and whatever that class kind of is, like a dash snow situation yeah whatever that class is needs to be cat- categorized because once you categorize that class then you can dismiss any efforts from that class to subdue practical efforts to make material differences to people's lives moving over to my my guess there is that it's not coordinated. It's not that people are like, oh, well, we don't want people to have more equity in the companies that they, platforms they participate in or something like that. It's more a, a matter of etiquette. It's more a matter of hmm. actually a, a strange kind of tension between being ideologically driven toward these normative utopian lefty goals, knowing in the back of your head that this is all a bit of a LARP. That in actuality, things are quite comfortable. And so when you do that, when you feel a lack or when you feel a sense of kind of uh, self un- uh, underconfidence about that, what you do is you compensate for it by being the most virtuous, right? You compensate for it by cleaving yourself to these principles, these romantic principles of, of bohemianism or of quote unquote good leftism or, or whatever it might mean, right? Because practicalities, because you're ab- functionally in your life, you're above practicalities, you know, hmm. because practically, practically your life is is certain. Is this where some of the ethics of like, we shouldn't talk about money and creative economies come from, do you think? Like th- there's a real reluctance and a strange rhetoric that floats around these things. Like don't discuss the exchange of money in the pursuit of your creative practice because you're going to commodify your work. Like, well, it seems like the net result of that is that I get paid a fraction of what I deserve or the value that I create for someone else. Is it very weird ethics that emerge from this this class that we have yet to name? But we should it coin is. something because it, it's uh, there's yeah. a real utility to having that term. It's selfish, and and I think that that ultimately, and this is a bigger gripe that I have. Right, it's like we can talk about Web three a bit later, and I have critiques there too. But like. It's a very easy moral calculus to make where you borrow these inherited ideologies from the past, right? You borrow an uh, artist who doesn't care about money man position, right? And you take those and you put them together. It's a really easy moral calculus to, to make, right? It's like you're either good or you're bad in those circumstances. The more complicated and relevant moral calculus I have is how much good in the world is suppressed by a few people who are very comfortable pushing on everybody unrealistic, impossible burdens of of naive utopian you know utopianism with no practical relevance in the world how much good is suppressed by them having the biggest platform by them actually act like actively uh, uh dissuading people from pursuing pragmatic better hmm. uh hmm. better structures that's a more complicated moral calculus if you were to be able to determine a name for that class that is functionally comfortable, even though they may be low income or functionally comfortable in their lives, it would be far, far easier to determine whether where they fall in that moral calculus. Because exactly yeah, like yeah. you, you can then coast by on subsistence income being the best, most virtuous person in the world. And, but expecting somebody else to do that who doesn't have that comfort level, I believe is immoral. Is there some kind of analogy that we could draw here to discussions around AI and training sets that uh, <laughs> I feel like there's a reluctance among the same, like, let's let's just say like creative commentary class as, as a bit of yeah. shorthand for this, that um, this kind of moralizing rhetoric and this hesitation to talk about the underlying finances and creative economies that 
this in itself is going to be, I don't know, um, evil or lead to some kind of uh, dystopia or whatever. And and the refusal to talk about the finances involved seems like it's going to be to the detriment of people who need to earn a living from their creative work. Yeah. And so I wonder if like, yeah. there, there's a lot of value in there and there's a lot of reluctance to discuss it, but um, that seems like a necessary thing to push. And then splits based off of offering your work up for a training set, if this is going to happen, like that should be uh, maybe a necessary addition to some of these conversations, which seems to have been pushed to the side in the last few months that these have become uh, popular topics to discuss. So to preface it all, the reason I'm interested in this topic, it's actually been a longstanding fascination of mine, which is just this idea of giving artists more control over the distribution and kind of financial wrappers around their work. It's why initially I started building like a decentralized publishing framework in like the early 2010s. And that's how I initially got interested in crypto and later NFTs and stuff like this. Um, and so it's no surprise. This is something that keeps rhyming in my life. But for those who don't know, you know, when you're using a system like a DALI or any of these multimodal AI systems that can generate images and songs and soon movies and so on, these systems only really work given access to large amounts of data. And as has been the tendency so far, I won't be overly critical on this, is that that data is rarely compensated. It's, it's rarely even approved. Um, it's just kind right, of straight from the right. web. But it's our position and the reason we started this organization is to, to build tools for consenting data relationships, right? So that in actuality, you're going to own your data and you're going to determine who gets to use it and how they get to use it. And you're going to, um, in return, hopefully, um, make some income uh, from that. The, where this is an interesting intersection, I think, is that it really, really brings up this problematic of inheriting 20th century positions. Because yes. when you're dealing with the complicated nuances of this AI media reality that I think I would argue is probably going to be a, play a big role in everything you know, everything media related in our lives going forward. Um, it's not a, it's not a blip. It's not hype. Bigger or smaller than how Web two transformed distribution for creative work. Uh, it, it's hard to say bigger or smaller, but but I would say a, a bare minimum as important at a bare minimum. Mm -hmm. I think that the the power of these tools and the peculiar ways in which they change the creative workflow and how I think that even the most kind of hyperventilating booster is underestimating how big a deal this is going to be. I think I think everything's going to change as a result of these tools and it might take it might take 5 years, it might take 18 months, but I think it's 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 it behooves everybody to to get an understanding of them. I think it's they're a big deal. Um which is not to say that they're going to replace artists and that blah blah blah. Like don't don't misread me here. It's going to be a big deal. But 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 to finish that point that this idea that a lot of people we came up with this term spawning for generating works based on a training set training corpus and we did that deliberately because people often use analogies when you talk about the ip concerns around machine learning and we're like no this isn't sampling it isn't napster there is no clear analogy to the ip wars of the 20th century the problem is the broader public hasn't been introduced to why that is the case yet and so when you open the newspaper you will see tech boosters on one side, and then you'll see tech critics on the other side. And oftentimes, you know, and these kind of like moral positions that were forged, let's say, around about the, the file sharing wars or the sampling wars were ultimately the most progressive position there, which I think I probably agree with in retrospect, was to not be punitive, to not shut things down, 
you know, to let samplers sampling as a form of as its own form of expression, to let those people experiment, um, you know, to not shut down file sharing sites or whatnot, what CD, um, you know, in retrospect, they were right. The, the, the problem is, is that the, the power of these tools is just incomparable to the power of a sampler or the power of a file sharing right. system. Right. You know, I, I could write an app that could scrape every Substack and produce derivative articles on every article written on Substack and then sell ads next to that and call it the automated times. I could train a neural network on a particular artist and produce infinite songs in their style and image for the rest of time and charge for that. In some jurisdictions, I would be allowed to do that. That is very, very different in terms of scale and impact and consequence to what sampling of file sharing was. And so I think that the analogy to make there is that at some point we do need for discursive platforms, conversations more broadly, to be living in 2022. And even though we can borrow from lessons of the past, we cannot inherit that ideological jacket to put on because ultimately it doesn't serve anybody. Um, and so, and I think that's the same when we talk about politics and it's the same when we talk about art, art ideologies or whatnot, they're all very interesting and useful. And we live in a different socioeconomic technical time that requires and demands debate and, and new vernacular. And because it's not a game anymore, right? This, in the context of AI or, or the socioeconomic situation for artists in cities or, or wherever or online, this isn't a game anymore. We kind of need a clean slate approach. Lord knows I've made a lot of internet work that was just supposed to circulate for free and just have influence and be open source in a way and never commercialized or monetized in any meaningful sense. And for some people, that is the preferred way to go about these things where they kind of do it as a hobby and then they just want to have these images out in the world. And that's uh, that, that's perfectly fine. But then, as you mentioned, there are instances where the sampling is more in the context of like a mood board industrial thing where people are sampling up and they're stealing from younger artists or like they're appropriating without permission and then they monetize it to tremendous success. And then they're struggling people at the mezzo interim tiers that uh, could have really used a split off of that where if their work had been incorporated into some type of training set and they got a small royalty off of that, it may mean literally the the case of them being able to maintain their studio or have like one day a week to work on their practice. So these could be quite um, influential, uh, meaningful decisions later on. Absolutely. And this is the thing is like, you know, I've been very critical of kind of web two practices for the best part of a decade. And, and one of the positions I'll take on this related to the AI question is, you know, the one thing you can do is you can look at precedent, right? Like the meme accounts that steal from smaller meme accounts and sell premium placement to brands is a pretty bad precedent to set. If we accept that in a non-automated scenario, what happens when we pour automation on that cultural right. habit? Right. That's a very bad habit. And so I think and I think that's a real concern. I mean the real mm -hmm. concern is I, I think in some ways Web2 platform populism has has anointed a bunch of mad kings. Like the most popular kid, the most crazy kid, the most shameless kid became the biggest cultural figures. And my concern is that when now anybody can have their own private HBO or with these automation tools, the way it's going to go in the next few years, there's nothing to impede, you know, Jake Paul being the most successful, 
the most successful rapper or the most successful <laughs> uh, film director, right? Because because the the cost, the marginal cost of producing media is going to be so low, and the skill required to execute stuff is going to be so uh, small. Sure, sure. If we're if we're willing to accept populism on its face, right? Just this idea of saying, well, you know, the thing that gets the most clicks is clearly the best thing. It needs to be rewarded the best way, and we are also willing to accept that to accept a standard in which we don't demand attribution or you know fair compensation for people who come up with ideas and experiment then we haven't seen anything yet right i mean like the the te- the trends that we've seen over web 2 will just accelerate and that's and i think that's a real concern that being said i'm quite optimistic and that's part of the reason we put the organization together is i think that there's something almost so ghoulish to that possibility that i think at some point what we might see is is the ai conversation accelerate the extremes to such an extent that people will start to care about uh, where the media possible. comes from again. That's yeah. my hope. That's my hope. <laughs> That's very possible. Yeah, I mean, the the asymmetries of the current creator economies are just going to absolutely explode once these things are deployed at scale. Yeah, so it's especially important to do some of that legwork, some of that heavy lifting now. Should we talk about, uh, we have a conversation coming up in Berlin that will address oh, some yeah. of these topics yeah, towards the end of the month. And I think I'm going to try and coordinate this program to come out either just before or just after we do that talk. Awesome. Do you want to give a few plugs for stuff that you have coming up? What's the best way for people to find what you're working on now and to get in touch? Matt with 1T, Matt Dryhurst on Twitter. Yeah, we publish Interdependence every week or two. I would check out spawning.ai, spawning kind of like respawning. If you're curious, if you're an artist who's curious about doing some fun stuff with your data, <laughs> um, we're going to be rolling out some more tools for artists in the next couple of weeks. And then the artwork with Holly, I mean, if you just search my and Holly's name, you, you'll, you'll find that stuff. We actually don't have a website. Matt, thank you so much for making the time to talk to me today. Anything else that we should plug for an outro? No, honestly, it's my pleasure. I'm so spirited for everything you do. I'm very lucky that we get to hang out on occasion as a result of Channel. I'm very, very enamored with all the work you do. And I occasionally do uh, jump in and lurk on the DNR uh, Discord, but then uh, quickly find <laughs> myself. That's one That's one environment where I don't feel like the uh, the youngest person in the room. Let's put, put it that way. Absolutely. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, we, well, we got to learn from the Zoomers. Yeah, totally. But that being said, I mean, like any, yeah, anyone in DNR, if I can ever, you know, if I can never lend, uh, lend a five minute opinion on something, I'm, I'm always uh, more than happy to. And, and it's genuinely yeah, the, the work you all have been doing, you know, kind of restructuring what it means to kind of co-publish and co-present works. I think uh, I think historically historically speaking will be something written upon with great favor. If there were a shift I've seen in the past few years that gives me the most hope and is the most kind of like stimulating, just like intellectually stimulating, it it it's something like that. It's something like I think I think Julian called it what a the generative adversarial media network or the hmm. this idea of of groups of people uh, publishing together under a common vibe for want of a better term, I think is uh, it's it's really impressive and, and just and really inspiring. So yeah, yeah. always happy oh, to thank chat you so and, much. Uh, and, and lots of love to the to the Discord. <laughs> oh thank you. Thank you so much, Matt. That's so generous. My pleasure. More again soon.
Speaking to you the next six one.